It's so, so good to be back uh, home, to be here. We were uh, last week, we were in uh, the Dominican with some of you, some of y'all. And what a uh, eye-opening time. And my, my international travels up to then had incorporated Canada and Tijuana. So I'm just this massive international traveler, aren't I? But it, it, was, it was good. My wife jokes with me because I really don't like things that aren't clean. I really don't like bugs. Uh, I was going to I was going to go missionary in New Guinea. This was my my goal, going to the jungles. And uh, boy, that would have been a mess, wouldn't it? Uh, God knows. Um, it's good to be here. It's good good to, good to see you this uh, morning. At Thanksgiving, two thousand six, James Kim. He was a, a senior editor for CNET. He and his wife Katie and their their two daughters piled in their car. They were going to go do a, a family relaxing, enjoyable. Uh, time through the southern, uh, the mountains, southern Oregon, and as they were they were driving, they came to a a, a bend in the road, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, James Kim took off onto this remote logging road further and further into the uh, forest wilderness. His station wagon got stuck in the snow, and then he went out looking for for help, never to return. Uh, when they re- rescued uh, Katie, his wife, and his two daughters, and then they recovered his body, they started asking the questions. Why in the world would this very intelligent man leave this nice road to go down this, this white-knuckle, winter-impassable, uh, remote road to nowhere? And as they began to, to look through all the documents and talk, and he, he was following, accurately so, a, a faulty online map. If you're trying to get somewhere and your, your map is faulty, you have a good possibility of, of not just not getting to your destination and not just wasting time and not just uh, uh, going way off in the wrong direction, but of having some disaster uh, befall you now for us in life we will um, come to crossroads from time to time where we need to make a decision where we're kind of stuck we can go this way or this way not making a decision is not an option and so so we try to figure out which way we need to go and we look through our life map to make that call and our life map consists of our values those things that we think are important the, the things that we think are needed to live life the way we think it needs to be lived. Our life map consists of our knowledge, the, the things we've picked up and the things we've heard and that which others have told us. It consists of our, our experience. And all of these things are, are woven together to form a grid through which we, we push through all of these decisions when we come to crossroads and we have to make the call. Now, when we make the decision, we certainly have control over the decision we make. But we don't have control over the consequences that accompany that decision. If you're at work and you come across some finances, some money, and you know the accounting system is such where you will never, ever be caught. And so you know there's that one time you didn't put down that overtime and now you got passed for the raise and you really didn't, you need, you need this and, and it's really just, you justify it in your mind and so you take it. One day, if you get caught, often you will, uh, you may end up losing an awful lot behind bars, on and on. You can choose which way you're going to go, but you can't choose the consequences of those uh, actions as well. Now, here's the deal. Our, our life maps that, that we use to make these decisions are faulty life maps, as faulty as James Kim's life map. 
uh, our information that, that uh, informs our decisions is faulty. I remember in seventh grade shop class, Bill Halloran, God bless his soul, he taught me all about the birds and the bees. I never heard about the birds and the bees before. But Bill shared them with me. But Bill uh, got some stuff wrong. You know, it's like birds and the bees and vultures. I mean, it's just kind of, whoa, man, are you sure? Says, yeah, this is the way it is. Wow. Man. You know, I'm not going to tell you any further about, about that. But, but we get information in our life as we go through life from, from well-meaning people who are just misinformed. Or people who have an axe to grind. Or people who are very prejudiced. My, my dad grew up in the deep south and uh, he was very, very prejudiced. Uh, I grew up in that. And it took me a while to, to overcome some of those things because it's just inbred into your, into your mind. We hear from people who have an axe to grind who have deep woundedness in their heart, and so they're sharing with everything, all the passion you can imagine, and they're sure this is true. But it's not really true. But as we listen, it shapes us. Maybe our, our experiences in the past have been unhealthy, or our values are wrong. And so, so problem is, we, we, we come to our, the, our, the fork in the road, and we have to make a call, but our life map is faulty. Now, if our decisions determine our destiny, which they do, and if our decisions are determined by our life map, which they are, and if our life map is faulty, which it is, we've got trouble. What, what do we do? Let me throw more, one more thing on this. Because as believers, part of our life map, as those who claim to surrender their life to Jesus, they're going to follow him, his ways, then our faith needs to be part of that grid that, by which we make our, our decisions. And... You know, it's interesting how many folk you run into um, are followers of Christ. They claim they are, but their faith really is is categorized to to Sunday. Basically, that's it. And maybe a few other activities during the week, but that's, that's basically it. I would propose that your faith maybe has nothing to do with Sunday, but everything from Monday morning through Saturday night. When you hit those crossroads and you have to make calls, that's when your faith is really decided what it is. That's when it's really shown forth for what it is. That, that, that is what, what it needs to be. Now, the, this series that we're starting, Crossroads, we're doing this for a couple of reasons. One is I have seen, and I'm sure you have, a lot of Christian folk who end up in the ditch on a regular basis. And if you go back and if you follow it back, you can often trace it to hitting that crossroads, decisions to make, and they made the wrong call. Their faith was absent from, from the decision that they made. And it led them, like James Kim, into a place they never intended to be, something they would have never, if they would have known the consequences, they would have never gone there. But unfortunately, we don't know the consequences until it's too late. So we're going to be looking at different people in Scripture who came to crossroads, crossroads that you and I will come to. And we're going to look at how they responded. Sometimes their, their faith led them accordingly, properly, sometimes not. And the goal, again, is that we might be transformed, that we might understand more biblically how we are to respond when we hit those things in such a way that would honor God. And this morning, we're going to start with the primary crossroad that we all face, and that is the crossroad of how we view life. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to, to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. On the, the morning that Nebuchadnezzar uh, 
decided his despicable act. Probably started off like any other morning for Nebuchadnezzar. It's a little uh, callousness, a little stiffness in his joints from all those years, you know, sleeping on the ground in his military campaigns as he expanded and defended his kingdom. Uh, But that was a long time ago. According to our understanding of history, the last years of Nebuchadnezzar's life were incredible peace, uh, enjoying all the benefits of a land uh, subdued. That's where, that's where Nebuchadnezzar was, was at. And so that morning when he walked out on the top of his palace and he committed an incredible uh, act of defiance of God, uh, probably, again, started like any normal morning. Nebuchadnezzar might have been feeling a little bit smug. He was probably thinking that he has achieved a lot in his life. And he had, because all of the history that we know about Nebuchadnezzar is that he never tasted defeat ever ever if you were to go to his palace and you go to his trophy room and you look on the north wall you would see pictures of of pharaohs and warlords and commanders and generals and kings everywhere from syria to egypt uh, all the people you know you know may they rest in peace who at one point would bow down to to nebuchadnezzar but he never bowed down to anybody and so so that morning when he walked out on, on his palace roof and he looked over Babylon, and you've got to keep in mind, Babylon was more than just his home. Babylon was his life. In the Babylonian Chronicles, this was their history from their viewpoint, they have uh, um, entire war campaigns that were designed for no other purpose than to bring back skilled craftsmen and booty to build up Babylon to make it a greater and greater city. If there was a finer city in the ancient world, history books don't know about it. Because Babylon was an incredible, incredible place. As Nebuchadnezzar would have walked out on his roof and looked over his city, he would have saw maybe the sun gleaming off of the Euphrates River that came right through the center of his city. And he could watch ships, trading ships, come right into his city and unload their cargo and take, pick up their exports and move on. And maybe as he looked at the bridge that, that connected East and West Babylon, he would see his soldiers lining it. He would be reminded of his, his, his war machine that was batting a thousand, whom nobody could touch. The fiercest, most successful army in the world of which he was the commander in chief. And as he, as he stood on his palace overlooking the city, maybe he saw the 16 pinnacles of temples in his, in his city. None greater, of course, than Marduk's ziggurat. This was his pyramid to his god Marduk, about a football field and a half wide by long and about a football field high. Uh, Babylon, it's a huge city for a walled city, is about two miles by a mile and a half. It had forests in, in, in the city, with, complete with wildlife in the city. And because he wanted to make sure it was protected, he erected a wall about 40 feet high. I'm six feet tall, so almost seven of me tall. By 23 feet wide, and then 20 feet, three feet later, just to make doubly sure, he built another wall. And then after that wall, he put out a moat, just to make doubly sure, triply sure, to guard his city. Now, no one's going to attack Babylon anyway because of of their uh, statistics of their record. You'd be crazy to do such, but just making sure. And so as Nebuchadnezzar looked over his city that morning, Just before he became an enemy of God, he may have walked out into one of his hanging gardens. Now, you've heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. These were parks, basically, that he built up to the level of the walls. 
42 different species of fruit and nut and palm trees, cascading waterfalls. If you would have been standing from some distance looking at Babylon, it would have looked like an oasis had come down from heaven and rested right on, on the city. And so as, as, as Nebuchadnezzar is looking over the city and looking over all of this magnificence, this is what he says. This is when he, he commits the greatest sin one can commit. It's in verse, chapter 4, verse 29 and 30. It says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, and this is his sin, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That's it. You might say, huh, that's it? No annihilation of old people groups? No Nothing including, you know, chainsaws and his horrible, terrible de- things and hurting people and things. That's it. I mean, it's just this 24 words. It's just a question. It's not even cursing God. It's not a demonic incantation. There's not even any swear words in this when crying out loud. How can this be that bad? It doesn't seem that bad. It looked like he was just stating the obvious. And from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, that might have been what was happening. But Nebuchadnezzar's words betray a, a heart of, and here's the deal, a heart of pride. Now, Al, you can't picture, when you get into Scripture, a worse sin than pride, at least according to Scripture. Proverbs chapter 6 says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. The word detestable means makes him sick. You want to know what makes God sick? First thing on the list, top of the list, haughty eyes. That's pride. Proverbs 16 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. That word detest, interesting word. Remember when God created, and he created the seas, and the sea anemones, and the seahorses, and the octopi, and he created the iguanas, and the tyrannosaurus rexes, and and all the trees, and the stars, and the black holes. And He gets done with everything. What's he say? Good. Good. This is good. You think that God's a great economizer of words. You think he'd look at, at pride and he'd say, bad. He doesn't do that. There's a word for bad. He doesn't use that one. He goes almost full tilt, as far extreme as you can, detests. It can't even be in my presence. It is such an abomination. On James 4, because this summarizes basically God's view of pride. The scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Battle lines have been drawn. God has put the proud on one side, himself on the other. Now listen, the only thing worse than having Satan as your enemy is having God as your enemy. And God has said the proud enemies were enemies here. Now you might look at this kind of thing. You might say, you know what? I agree with God. I dislike prideful people. Those World Federation wrestler types, you know. Uh, You know, I'm the greatest and I'm incredible and everybody else is bad. and, And we just test that. Well, pride can certainly manifest itself through conceit. I've got uh, three younger brothers. Uh, my middle younger brother's Timmy. And Timmy's a great kid. Uh, today he leads a, a mission outside of, of Chicago, a moody grad, neat guy. But when he was in high school, uh, Timmy had some black sheep days. Uh, name a vice, and he was pretty much into it, drugs and girls and partying and trouble with the law. All kinds of shot steroids on a regular basis to get big, to win a Mr. Memphis contest. This is the kid that I threw out of the house naked when he was little. No discernment here. Uh, so this was Timmy. And, and there was a place where we, we, we uh, had this major war in the house again with Timmy. The police had just come or whatever it was. 
and uh, Timmy Blue. And, and he said, you guys are all losers. You're losers. I am tired of people telling Timmy what Timmy needs to do and how Timmy needs to live his life and how fast Timmy should go and who Timmy should see and how he should be kind to certain people. I am tired of it. And from this point on, it's not happening. From this point on, Timmy doesn't listen to anybody else. Timmy does not listen to rules. He makes the rules. And if he wants to blankety blankety break the rules that he's made, he'll do it. And they took off. Pride certainly can be seen as conceit. But it's real important that we don't confuse the two. Because pride and conceit are not the same. Conceit is just the the outward manifestation. But pride can hide. And a lot of people can have it hidden in their heart. They don't even know it. But it's a key part. And because they don't have the conceit thing going, they're thinking they're fine. But if pride makes us an enemy of God, then we need to check it out and see how it would impact us. So, so Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar and look at his life and see how that uh, plays out. In chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, turn to uh, Daniel 4 if you're not there yet. Chapter 4, verse 4. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. The word prosperous, interesting word. It, it, it means literally to grow green. It's the picture of a, a huge tree. It's a tree that, that keeps growing taller and reaches out further and further and further, encompassing more and more of, of life. And this is what Nebuch- how Nebuchadnezzar sees himself, maybe one of the cedars of Lebanon. Maybe if we would draw a correlation with ourselves, we'd probably want to be more like a sequoia, you know, like a General Lee, huge, and the tunnel goes through it and just very big. And that's who wants to be small, right? Yeah, that, that's right. And this, this is where Nebuchadnezzar is. Let me ask you a question. Do you live in Nebuchadnezzar's neighborhood? You might say, well, I don't really don't have the possessions and prestige to you know, buy a house next to his. Well, granted, few of us do. But do you live in his neighborhood? Uh, let me ask you, your, your kids, how are they doing? Uh, they're doing okay. I mean, nobody's perfect, but yeah, they're doing all right. Maybe they've left home and they're making a name for themselves and they're successful. And you might sit back and go, yeah, they're doing all right. How about financially, how's life going? You might say, well, I'm taking a hit with the market like everybody else, but, you know, I'm doing fine. I mean, I'm never going to buy that island that I wanted, you know, but, but you know what? I've, I've, I've protected myself. I've diversified. I'm, I'm looking okay. When t- retirement hits, I'm going to be right online. Our retirement's going on now. And you know what? I'm not too worried. We're okay. What about vocationally? You might say, well, I'm never going to be the CEO, but I've gotten much further than I thought I ever would coming out of college. And so, yeah, I'm comfortable. That's a great place to be, right? But keep in mind, that's what puts you in Nebuchadnezzar's neighborhood. And that is a very dangerous neighborhood to live in. Jesus said it's much easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. By biblical standards, we are all in Nebuchadnezzar's neighborhood. And we praise God for folk who are uh, upward, they're way up the ladder, who are godly. I praise God for such folk. But the further you go, the more dangerous it becomes. It's a greenhouse. For pride, to to encompass pride in your heart. Let's just define pride for a second so we're talking about it. Because is pride that feeling I get when my kid kicks a goal, the last minute of the game and they win it for the kid? Is that that pride? Or is pride when my kid brings home a report card and he's doing very well? Or when someone in my family has a major success? Or uh, 
Is it just feelings of accomplishment? I mean, maybe this is my own dysfunction. You know, you clean out the garage, and then just before you go to bed, I mean, it's been a real mess, but just before you go to bed, everyone else is, is heading that direction. You go towards the garage, you open the door, and you turn the light and just look at it, and you go, this is just, you, don't, you do this too, right? Uh, is that pride? I would say biblically that has nothing to do with, with pride. Uh, pride, according to this text, according to Scripture, is a failure to recognize that I have what I have by the hand of God. Pride is a failure to recognize that I am who I am by the hand of God or that I am where I am by the hand of God. That is, pride, what pride does is pride takes those gifts that God has given and it cuts off the giver. Instead, it puts them in the trophy case. And those gifts, well, those are not gifts at all. Those are things that I've achieved. Those are things that I've accomplished. Those are are tributes to my ingenuity and my creativity and my power and my uh, abilities. That therein is pride. And so Nebuchadnezzar, one night, because of his comments in verse 10, because of his thought in verse 10, he has a, a dream. And he realizes that, that this dream is not the pepperoni he had the night before. This dream has got God written all over it. And so he calls in Daniel. He says, Daniel, you've got to help me out. I've had a dream and I know God's involved with this thing. I'm just not sure what it means. Can you, can you t- tell it to me? Fix it out. Interpret this thing for me. And he says, these are the visions I saw, verse 10, while lying in my bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree. God says, you want to continue on? You like this tree motif? All right, we'll continue on with this thing. We'll keep going with it. In the middle of the land, it's it's preeminent, its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. This is what he wanted for himself, right? This is how he saw himself. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. That's so far, good dream. But it's about to turn into a nightmare. Verse 13, in the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven And let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of of a man. And let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. A lot of folk think the seven times is seven years. Then verse 17, I think it's the, the central verse of this whole text. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that this is the whole purpose for the dream for all this. So that. The living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. That's his dream. Daniel interprets verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now we might think, is it proper to expect 
Nebuchadnezzar to have understood that there was a sovereign God. I mean, I mean, he's a pagan king for crying out loud. And his kingdom had gods, Marduk, and, uh, but, but Yahweh was not one of them. Can we really expect this guy? I mean, doesn't it sound like the, the judgment that God's going to label on this guy just because he was uh, considering the things that he built is unto himself? Isn't this judgment just a little out of line? Is God just going a little too far? Got to have a bad day here? What's going on? Well, keep in mind we've got uh, three other chapters before chapter 4, and we need to understand them a little bit. I think they give us some context. I think they make chapter 4 a, a live, actually. Chapter 1, remember Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, they get hauled off into captivity around 600 B.C. They get going, go, brought to Babylon with a bunch of other guys. And they're all put through you know, Babylon University. And they're taught Babylonian, and they're taught the culture. And for three years, they are just immersed in this stuff. And then Nebuchadnezzar himself is going to give the final exam. And he finds Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego to be head and shoulders above everybody else. These guys are the most competent, the most wise, the most clear, the most agendaless guys that he's got. And he trusts them immensely, gives them everything. They are, they are going to be his primary counselors. Uh, but he knows. They're not really Babylonian, that they are Hebrew and they worship a God named Yahweh. They've made it very clear that they worship God. And then in chapter 3, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this big statue of gold. Remember this? And he says, when the, when the national anthem goes off, everybody bows down to my statue or I'm going to make your death very painful. And the national anthem goes off and those guys uh, don't bow down. And so Nebuchadnezzar brings Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego into his presence. And he says, okay, guys, listen, maybe you didn't understand me. We're going to try this one more time. The band's going to play. And as soon as the national anthem starts, you bow down or you can be real sorry. And remember, they say, oh, king, live forever. Uh, the God we serve certainly can deliver us and he will deliver us. But even if he does not, remember this, we won't, we won't bow down. And so Neb throws them in the furnace. He sits back to watch them uh, die. And then... According to Nebuchadnezzar's own mouth, he sees a fourth guy in the furnace. And according to Nebuchadnezzar's own mouth, this fourth looks like a son of the gods. So he calls this Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego out of the furnace. And by his comments, there's only one God. It's not Marduk. It's your sovereign God. He's in charge of the whole world. I can't decide to kill anyone if this God decides that I shouldn't do it. He's in charge. Several years must have transpired between chapters 3 and 4 because Nebuchadnezzar somehow forgot about that. But then chapter 2. And I want to sh- show you this. If you've got your Bibles open, turn over to chapter, 30, or chapter 2, verse 36. Because Nebuchadnezzar had a, a previous dream. And he called Daniel in. He said, Daniel, interpret this dream for me. And listen to what Daniel does, how he interprets this, this dream. Verse, verse 37 of chapter 2. He says, you, O king... Are the king of kings. You're you're right. You're in charge. You're the man. Then he says, the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. And you could see Nebuchadnezzar going, whoa, 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 time, time, time. Daniel, Daniel, nobody gave me anything. I'm in charge of this kingdom because I, I earned it. Do you think I'm here because I've won the lotto? What are you talking about? And Daniel says, no, 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 King, you're you misunderstanding me. Hear me, hear me here. The God of heaven has given you. You're right. You got it. But the God of heaven has given it to you. 
And Nebuchadnezzar may say, no, 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 no. Listen, people don't follow me because I'm an idiot. I have got greater wisdom than everybody else. I'm an incredible war strategist. I, I am, by my faith, a god of sorts. You need to understand that the reason why people follow me is because I can make the right decisions, because I am a, a, a leader par excellence. And Daniel might say, yes, I didn't deny any of those things. You, yeah, perhaps you're all of those things, but let me ask you, Nebuchadnezzar, where did you get those things? You buy, did you buy them at the store? Oh, did you steal them from somebody? Oh, you were born with those things. You were, you were given those things. And Nebuchadnezzar might say, Daniel, Daniel, you're not hearing me. I wasn't given anything. You know, you know Nebuchadnezzar in his rage. I wasn't given anything. And Daniel would say, well, 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 king, hang on. Who gave you breath? And, and how come you were born in the royal family, not in a peasant family? And even in the royal family, how come you were born in the birth order you were born in so that you would be the crown prince? And Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you all that you have. He's given it to you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar goes on in chapter 4. Well, let me, let me ask even as we, as we turn back to 4. Why are you where you are? How did you get where you are? You say, you know what? I made some right decisions. A little bit of luck thrown in there. Out of school, I, I, I picked the right college. And when I got there, you know, everyone else was partying, but not me, man. I was working. I picked a marketable major, first of all. I looked down the road where it could go, and then I worked with everything I had to make sure I got the grades. And then when it was all said and done, I didn't wait for people to come pursue me. I researched. I knew what, what corporations were going to be moving ahead and where the sectors were going. And so I got into the right, the right company. I checked it out, and I made sure I was there. And once I got there... I was there first person in the morning and I stayed till after they locked the doors at night and I found out exactly what my supervisor wanted and I gave it to him in spades and I knew who I needed to buddy up with. And when you look at me financially, you need to know the reason why I am where I am is because I made some right decisions. None of this Enron fiasco stuff for me, man, because I diversification, baby. You know, I, mean, I just built a double wall moat around my stuff. And my health, I've got my health because I work out, because I eat right, because I get right sleep. You want to know why I am where I am? This is why. That's the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Scripturally, and this is real important for us, no, the sovereignty of God is never, ever, ever a rock we can hide behind, an excuse for our negligence, an excuse for a lack of planning, an excuse for uh, a laissez-faire mentality as we make decisions, as we move ahead in life. Scripture is replete over and over again. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. We have to give it 100% of what we have. Certainly, no question about it. However, the only reason you're here today, the only reason you have not uh, been taken out by a childhood disease is because of the sovereign grace of God. The only reason when you were in that accident a couple years back, the only reason you were not killed is because of the sovereign grace of God. The only reason you have not heard the doctor say it's terminal, it's too far progressed, we can do nothing about it because of the sovereign grace of God. And the only reason why you have not had a, a financial crisis that, that is of life-altering proportion is because of the sovereign grace of God. Now, it's very interesting with, with Nebuchadnezzar here because God was not asking him to trade in his, his kingdom for, for a cave someplace and just go and hang out in the cave. 
Scripture is very clear. God gave it to him. And God was happy that he, he ruled properly, but he needed to rule with the understanding that it has all come from God, that God was over, God was sovereign, it was gifts from God, it was nothing that he gained in and of himself. And so Nebuchadnezzar came to this crossroad as he viewed life. He understood, he knew, he, he realized that there was a God. He realized that he really had no control over someone's death if God said no. But still, in chapter 4, he decided that he was going to Go with his pride. So in chapter 4, verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my, my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, just look at that for a second and listen as I read back chapter 2, verse 37. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. But Nebuchadnezzar, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? 31. The words were still on his lips. When a voice came from heaven, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. And ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That's a strange judgment, isn't it? My goodness, a strange judgment. But not really, if you think about it. Because that which separates us from animals, from all other animals, one thing really, and that's that we have been created in the image of God. Whatever being created in the image of God means, one thing it contains is that we're to have relationship with God. That we recognize that we are the creature, that he is the creator. That it's of his sovereignness, it's his glory, it's his power. It's only by his compassions that we are not consumed. He he is God and my job is to know him and walk with him and live for him. But when mankind decides, that's not for me. I'm going to live my life for my glory and my power and who I am. They are taking the image of God that they were made in and they are discarding it. They are turning themselves into nothing more than another beast of the field, another creature. They are living animal like no different than any other animal. Get ahead, self-protect. That's it. They've turned their back on the only thing that separates them from the rest of the animals. They've become like one themselves. Now, uh, if you know anything about beasts, my, my uncle uh, used to have a hog farm in Tennessee. As a kid, I loved going to the hog farm. It was, it was fun. Uh, they'd fill the troughs with slop and then open up the hog house, 
I don't know the proper names for this stuff. Uh, the hog house, I call it. And all these hogs, come, they come rambling out. I mean, you, you seeing this? And they're just pushing and shoving. And they're just get to the trough and stick your whole head in there and just make sure you get as much and knock the other guys aside. I never once saw them come to the door of the hog house saying, oh, Porky, after you, you go first. You know, you, you need it more than I. No, no, Ham, you know, you could use it. Now, I found some nice garbage behind the shed yesterday. And I'm better. You don't see that. Because they're all concerned about themselves. It's like, it's like we're all queens and everything else and everybody else is a pawn. And to the extent that they can help me be comfortable and they can help me enjoy and they can help me get ahead and they can help me. Well, wonderful that they can be in my kingdom. But as soon as they don't help me do those things anymore, they'd be sacrificed. They're out of here. I've got no, got no need for them. This was where Nebuchadnezzar was. This is where, where he was at. Let me ask you, are you living in your life today? Are you living animal-like? Or are you living creature-like? Uh, it's amazing how many animal-like folk dress so nice, drive so nice. Go, uh, they just live uh, high, high life. But yet they're beasts of the field. Now, what do you do if that's where you're at? But it's not where you're supposed to be. You know that's not what you're created for. And you know that's getting you nowhere in life. Well, what do you do? Well, verse 34, look what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of that time, in seven years we presume, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. That's a term for recognized God. I raised my eyes to heaven. And it's not just a mental cognition. It is, it is a, a heart thing. And look what happens when he raises his eyes toward heaven. And my sanity was restored. Isn't that amazing? There's no sanity unless your eyes are raised to heaven. Then I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Maybe you're here this morning and you trusted Christ a long time back, but you got off the path. Maybe you're this morning, you never have, and you realize that you're still living as a beast. You know, my, my kid brother, Timmy, when he had that big rage thing and he, and he says, I'm out of here and you guys are losers and I'm never listening to anybody again and I make the rules and I don't listen to anybody and on and on. I said, well, Tim, where are you going? He said, I'm joining the Marines. What? You don't like people telling you what to do? So you're joining the Marines? Yes. About, about three, three weeks into boot camp, I get a, a letter from him. Dear Mark, I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Probably everybody three weeks into boot camp is feeling that, right? Uh, but there was one guy in his company who decided when the rest of the Marines were living animal-like uh, this guy lived creature-like. This guy wasn't a big preacher person. He wasn't an obnoxious, fanatical person. But he lived right. And as Timmy watched him, and Timmy asked him about it, and the guy, sure enough, shared it's because of his faith in Christ, Tim was cut to the quick. And he got down on his knees by his bunk in boot camp. Total transformation. Total transformation. I'm done living like an animal. I recognize that over my life, my kingdom little as it is, you are. 
and everything I have, all my mental faculties, all my physical, everything I've got has come from you, is a gift from you, and is to be used for you. Now, now again, if, if you're in a situation where you trusted Christ a long time ago, you started going down that road, but somehow you got off, you switched. Maybe this morning, through the teaching of God's Word, you're back at the crossroads. And he'd say, you can't live that way. Quit living animal-like. I can't forget the end of Proverbs 16, where it says that don't, don't forget, don't, don't be deceived, uh, that judgment will come to those folk. Don't go down that road. There's always judgment where there's pride. Maybe this morning, your job, what God would have for you, is he's calling you back. Get on the right path. Maybe this morning you, you've never surrendered your life to Christ. And you'd say, you know what, I really can't do that. You don't understand the stuff I, I've done. And you know what, I have not understood the stuff you've done probably. And you haven't understood the things that I've done. But God has. And that's why Jesus was sent 2,000 years ago to take all of the stupid, idiotic, prideful things that we have done that separate us from God are our beast-like quality and take it on the cross for us. So if you come to him this morning, you say, I'm tired of living life like an animal. Uh, I want to be a creature. I recognize I'm raising my eyes to heaven, to you. I'm recognizing your sovereignty over my life. According to Scripture, what he'll do is all things will become new. He will come. He will take away, eradicate that that sin out. You'll be adopted into his family. And so I certainly want to give you that opportunity this morning.